discussing what leads to the Passover and all that is involved with it. As you know, uh, Israel, Jacob, and his family of 70 had gone in, down into Mitzrayim, uh, which is the correct Hebrew translation instead of Egypt. We call it Egypt, but it was Mitzrayim. The land of Ham, as the Psalms say, in three different places. But the story of Exodus, of course, begins with Moses being born and being raised within the Mitzrayimite kingship or Pharaohship, the leadership of that people, and becoming acquainted with their customs, their ceremonies, their culture and way of life. So he had that background. Even as we have grown up in this country, which is uh, in a larger sense a type of Mitzrayim, because Mitzrayim came to be known symbolically in the Bible as sin, something that had to be come out of. Uh, I think the Bible makes it very clear that the United States of America as well is a form of modern Babylon. The whole world under Satan is a system, a Babylonian or more truthfully, a satanic system. And America is certainly in the grip of Satan's way. And we have been this way since almost our inception. A few people came here who understood God's holy days, who understood the Sabbath, and a few of those key ingredients of God's people Israel. Uh, but they were shouted down very quickly after colonies began to thrive here in this land. It is very possible that the colony of Roanoke was a permanent colony. Uh, they do not know for sure what happened to those people although there was an inscription carved in a tree which indicated they may have gone inland from Roanoke, may have intermarried with the Indians. There's all kinds of speculation. But the possibility is that they did not die out there. And the numbers are interesting in that that was about 430 years ago, uh, I think this year, that the Roanoke colony was established. Is it ironic or coincident that Israel was in the land of Mitzrayim for 430 years and then God began to deliver them? There are certainly some parallels between history and our current situation today. They were so deeply enmeshed in the Egyptian culture that it was very, very hard to break away. First of all, the culture that they were in did not want to turn them loose, and they themselves had difficulty turning loose of what had become their way of life, their culture. They had forgotten the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and didn't even know His name at that point. Moses even had to ask God, who shall I tell them that you are? And God said, tell them, I am that I am. Which, roughly speaking, can mean there isn't anyone else but me. I am what I am. Let them know that there is nothing greater than what I am, I think is the message that was there. Now, they thought Pharaoh was great, and they thought the Egyptian 
place was great where they were. They had been given a goodly land in the land of Goshen uh, that was very productive. They were able to raise crops. They were able to raise animals. So they, in some respects, had a pretty good life, except that they had to do slave labor. They were so deeply ensconced there, and the Mitzriamites had become such harsh rulers over them, ultimately, that they were building cities for the Mitzriamites, making bricks, and simply working as slaves. Now, we don't see ourselves quite that way, I think, in our normal way of thinking in this land, but are we not pretty much slaves to corporatism today? Do they not determine for you about how much you will make in terms of money? There are minimum wages, and there are many who make maximum wages. And as the nation has prospered over the decades, and hundreds of years for that matter, but especially in the last decades, they have gauged the big corporations and the powers that be, how much money you're making. And then they have made the cost of rent, the cost of vehicles, the cost of food, and all consumer products to interface with the amount of money you're making so that they can snatch nearly all of it away from you. It used to be in the 40s and 50s, if a man worked hard, he could earn enough money with one salary to take care of his family. Then they decided they did not have enough workers in the workforce, and that may have been decided in darkened rooms in the corner, even in World War II, where the men were all fighting because World War II was a staged war, just like nearly all wars are. Driven by corporate, corporate profits by big companies and billionaires. They create wars and fund both sides. That's pretty well documented throughout history and especially the last few hundred years in Europe and America. But while the men were off fighting and dying, they brought the women more into the workforce and at the end of World War II, the women stayed in the workforce. So then prices began to go up because if one man could make a living for his family, and now you had two workers there, you needed to raise prices so that you could absorb all the money that both were making. So over a period of a few decades, it got to the point where it is today, where one person, unless they are some kind of professional, one person has difficulty earning enough to put a roof over and food for and transportation for his family. It almost requires two wages. And now they're even working on a lot of the young people who stay home because they can't afford their own apartment or their own transportation or whatever, and a higher and higher percentage all the time of young singles are living with their parents. So now prices are going to go where it takes three wages to be able to support a family. That 
is pretty much slavery. You are required to work a certain amount of hours for certain corporations in order to make enough to eat and to live. It is not yet a yoke of iron. It is still a wooden yoke, which is a little easier on the neck and not quite as heavy to bear. But it is very soon now going to be turned into an iron yoke where it is outright and utter slavery for those who survive. Now that's where Israel found themselves in Mitzrayim. And when they complained, straw was taken away and they had to make as many bricks without straw as they had before. So the iron yoke got heavier and heavier upon them. Now God had been preparing Moses through this period of time first in the courts of Pharaoh, and then later in the desert for 40 years out in the land of Midian, uh, working for his father-in-law Jethro, where he began to raise a family. And then God came to him in the story of the burning bush, as you know, and let Moses know that he was to de deliver his people out of Mitzrayim. And Moses had some excuses as to why that shouldn't be him, and why he wasn't qualified, and so on and so on. He wasn't an apostle, after all. So how could he do that? Well, God dealt with that ultimately and told him who he was and what the people were to call him and to tell him who had been sent. And he even told him that when he went before the people, I'm in chapter 4 of Exodus now, uh, end of verse 1, they will say to you, the Eternal has not appeared to you. Who do you think you are, Moses? The last we heard about you, you'd killed a Mitzriamite and headed into the desert. And now you're coming back and saying that God appeared to you in a bush that was burning? You betcha. We'll, we'll, yeah, we're, we're on that. We hear you, and we certainly do not believe you. So then they had to go through a series of things whereby Moses approached Pharaoh and through a series of miracles it became apparent that Moses, through God, had been given powers that the magicians of Pharaoh simply did not have. Now we could spend a lot of time going through this whole story back here, but you're fairly familiar with it. I just want to tie it together with our present day circumstance and where we are as a people. We are getting more and more draconian laws day by day and week by week, executive orders and whatever, that are designed to take the Constitution away from us, that are designed to take our freedoms and posse comitatus from us, which is simply that an American has been, up till this point, deserving of a trial, to be treated properly, and not to be incarcerated unduly, given a fair trial, and set free if a jury of peers said they were innocent. That has been removed now by executive order, and they can take you off the street without any charges, without any provocation, lock you up, keep you there, interrogate you, and not tell anybody where you are 
until they either decide to turn you loose or kill you. That is today's law and fact of the land. Not passed by Congress, but by a rogue president who is making these uh, executive orders week by week. Now, I'm not blaming only our current president because the Bushes and Clinton were of the same stripe and they initiated many of these executive orders before the current president was ever put there. So all of them have been puppets on a string. Uh, so this is nothing new, and I'm not trying to blame any one person. Uh, we've had these guys that have been there all along doing the bidding of the powers behind the scenes. So our Constitution basically has been removed. And now this summer they are planning some military drills, which there's a great deal of uh, talk about on the Internet, that it may go live and they may, may begin to incarcerate people, uh, just drag them out of their homes like the Nazi Germans did, and like was done in ancient Mitzrayim. If we think you're going to have a Savior coming, we'll kill all the babies, the boy babies, just as Herod did in Christ's day. So they could come into your home and take your children away, just as the Child Protective Services can today, for almost any reason and without reason it is now being done, just because they want to. So the parallels between that situation and today's situation are becoming very real before our very eyes. And the time period is about the same. How do you think those Israelites felt as they were beaten and whipped and told to make even more bricks as the Egyptians or Mitzrayimites saw them beginning to possibly slip away from them? They felt futile. They felt powerless, helpless. What could they do before that power and that military that those people had over them. What can we do against DHS and NSA and uh, all these police groups that our government is now formulating uh, out of nothing and creating and providing them with billions of bullets and guns and military uh, might? What can you do? You feel helpless, you feel powerless, and that you can do nothing. That's the way these people felt back then. Well, they laid more work on them. And then Pharaoh refused to let them go, and so on. And God told Moses that he would show them that he was God. He said here in chapter 7, verse 5, And the Egyptians shall know but I am the Eternal when I stretch forth my hand upon Mitzrayim and bring out the children of Israel from among them. Does that resound in your mind with what we've read in Ezekiel, for instance? Dozens of times there, speaking of our modern-day nation, our peoples, Ephraim, Babylon today, where Israel is in the captivity of a Babylonian government in Washington, D.C. 
Ezekiel said over and over, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. It just seemed like every few verses, several times a chapter, he said it over and over and over again. It's mentioned back here in Exodus 7, but that was ancient history. Now we have the peoples of Israel in captivity again. God is going to punish the people, not just the government that is over us. Because we as a people, overall, have denied God, put God to the side, not followed His statutes, His judgments, or His Word, the Bible, which we have, and have distributed around the world, but don't follow. And He is going to make our people know that He is God, not just those in charge. Did Israel find out that he was God? Was it just Pharaoh and his armies and his people? Or did Israel herself find out who God was? It is interesting, and it has been a point made for years in the church, that once these plagues started, whereby God was going to show Pharaoh who he was, that Israel went through the first few plagues. They also did not know who God was. And when God told Moses to tell them, I am that I am, that didn't mean too much to them. It didn't resonate. They couldn't comprehend what that meant. But when these plagues started coming, they began to take notice. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> who, who, who is this that says he's God? And Moses will tell us, this is going to happen, and then it happens. God has always used human messengers to show what it is that He is going to do and then brings it to pass. He wouldn't have to do that, would He? Couldn't He send an angel with a loud voice in stereo to say across the land from up in the edge of outer space, I am God and I am about to send this. I am God and I'm about to send this. He could do that, but he never has. And according to scriptures and prophecy, he never will. He will even use people here at the end of the age to warn not only the peoples of this nation and the other nations of Israel, but ultimately the whole world. And when that warning is finished, then the end of this age will come. So God has done it before, and He is going to do it again. I suspect that we are going to suffer the beginnings of what this nation has to suffer. There will be a separation made, just as there was in Exodus. There is a little scripture in Isaiah I couldn't remember what, nine or ten. Somebody told me it was ten, and that sounds right. Which is a little obscure, but is quite interesting. I think I'll turn back and read that as it fits in right here, come to think of it. Yeah, here it is in Isaiah 10, verse 24. 
Therefore, thus says the eternal God of hosts, O my people that dwell in Zion, now he is going to gather his people uh, to Zion, uh, which we are in that area now already, and he's going to gather more. He says, Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite you with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against you after the manner of Mitzrayim. So, we know that Micah tells us that seven or eight principal men will go out against the king of Assyria when he comes into our land, and, as Gideon did, send them reeling and to death. But apparently prior to that, they're going to lift up a rod against us. Now, this isn't talking about the nation, per se, It's talking about the church here, those who dwell in Zion. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and my anger in their destruction. Then he goes on to talk about Gideon and the story of Midian, where 300 people put the total Assyrian army into utter confusion, and they killed one another and died. Now, does that tie in with what we're reading in Exodus? That some of what happens will come on us. That they will try to enslave us in the manner of Mitzrayim. Another scripture comes to mind, now that I think of it here in Isaiah 52. He says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Speaking of the church, as we know from Hebrews 12. For henceforth there shall no more come to you the uncircumcised and the unclean. True, sincere believers in God are the ones who are going to come. And he says, shake yourself from the dust. Arise and sit up, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So we are in the system in this nation, and other Israelites are in the system in other nations that we know of. But he tells us not to let them walk all over us anymore, but to loosen the bands for our neck, to get away from it. For this says the Eternal, you have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. We grew up in this system. We've sold ourselves to the system and the culture that is around us and didn't get anything for it. We're just in it and we're up to here in it. And it's hard to get out of it. That's why he says, wake up, sit up, shake the yoke off your neck. You here have begun to make strides toward that by following Micah 4 and getting out of the city and dwelling in the wilderness, as he tells us, before these things begin to come down. There will be more who will come because God is going to gather a 10% remnant of his church scattered all over the world as it is in so many different splinter groups. But he's going to bring them to the Zion, original Jerusalem area here in the Promised Land. I have no doubt of that from the scriptures I read. Now notice this in verse 4. For thus says the eternal God, My people went down aforetime into Mitzrayim, 
to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. So there was some Assyrian influence there, not just Mitzrayamite. And they were persecuted without cause. Now, if we come here to obey God, and they try to lay that on us, will we be persecuted without cause? And Isaiah 52 is an end-time <coughs> scripture, just before 53, about what Christ went through, and 54, about the gathering and lengthening the stakes of the tents and so on, to gather to serve God. So, does Isaiah 10 portend something that might come on us soon? And a minor slavery or an attempt at enslaving us might occur? Uh, is Jade Helm 15, which is centered in the southwest, involved in that in some way? And will, will it go live through a false flag? There's a lot of supposition and uh, uh, thought, speculation about that, and it could happen. I don't know for that for sure, but it appears to be a very real possibility if you read about it. So, all these plagues began to come. And what did Pharaoh do? He just got more adamant that you will not leave. You will be held here. And God would go, or Moses would go to God and God would say, well, I'm going to send another plague, but I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and he won't let you go. I know a fellow that gave a sermonette on this and looked into it and it's, uh, it may be a bit of a mistranslation. It says, uh, he, his conclusion was that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So I don't know uh, without getting into it technically one way or another, but in any case, his heart was hardened, <laughs> and he would not let them go. Just as they don't want to let us go. And if the Assyrian does come in our land, uh, which probably, I think, is the Russians, along with their allies, which are many Gentile nations, they're brought in here, and it appears that they are being brought in, that there are sightings of a foreign military all over this country now. Uh, they're all around us. And they may try to enslave even us. So, I think you might brace yourself and sort of expect that. The system is not going to want to let us go, and the new system and the new world order coming in certainly isn't going to want to let us go. And Satan, who is the head of the New World Order, certainly knows who we are. And he knows God's people around the world. So it only makes sense that he would try to enslave and destroy us. After all, in Revelation 12, when he is cast out for the last time, he will go after the remnant of the church's seed. He will, he will come after the church first. And those who have been gathered and go to safety will be protected, and the rest will be fair game for the new world order and the minions of Satan to enslave them and destroy them. This is what is coming. So, this went through ten plagues. There was a separation made, and the last ones just came on the Egyptians or Mitzrayamites. And then... In chapter 11, God told Moses that he would thrust them out. After the last one, 
they would be forced out. Go away now. Before Pharaoh had been hardened. But the last plague was the death of all the firstborn. And as we know, there was not one house in which there was not someone dead. This time, the heart was not hardened. This had become come to a point where those people realized that every last one of them could die. If there was one dead in every household come that morning, what about the next day? Who would go next? Wives? Daughters? Who would go last? Husbands? It really truly scared them at that point. At that point, they began to realize, I am that I am, had some power. We see in Isaiah 45 that the hidden treasures of God are going to be brought to light, the temple vessels, great riches, and that they will be used to show from the east to the west, from sunrise to sunset, who God is. So there are going to be some powerful things that happen, both in terms of some of the ancient artifacts of history coming to light, which will show where the promised land was and who God is. There will be all kinds of plagues, as we read in the Bible, that will be unleashed on the seas and on the land and on the people, just as it was done in the ancient world. So we are here to keep Passover in the Days of Unleavened Bread to go through a remembrance of what our peoples went through in the past. Why? It is a memorial, as Exodus 12 tells us, to mark it because it is going to happen again. And we are at the doorstep. It isn't far off. It is getting more and more ominous day by day, week by week. It isn't years between events now. It's months, weeks, even days as we see things developing before our very eyes. So then they were instructed in a specific way in which God was going to deliver them from that people who have come to be symbolized as sin. And sin pervades the earth, of course. But God instituted a plan, a new holy day system that would get them out of there under his power. So he told them in the beginning of months, Abib, the first month of the year, that they were to select a lamb and prepare it and then kill it right at sundown or thereabouts on the 14th of Abib, the first month of the year. Then they were to cook it and eat it with unleavened bread. Unleavened bread can be uh, defined in one sense as bread of haste. Quick bread, fast bread, bread of haste. Why was it unleavened? 
because they, it was a matter of time. They would not have time to let it rise. See, they didn't have chemical uh, leavening agents that we did today. They didn't have baking soda. They didn't have baking powder. They didn't have yeast that you buy in a packet. They, let the, they made the dough and they left it out and the yeast in the air over a period of time would enact with that dough and cause it to begin to rise. They didn't have big puffy loaves like we do today. Uh, it didn't rise that much from that natural process. Uh, they did probably make sourdough. In other words, you let the air and the yeast in the air cause it to rise. And then as that went through that dough, you kept back part of the dough each day. And it gave you a quicker start and a faster uh, leavening than doing it just straight from air. So you could, you could make uh, leavened bread from scratch given time. You made it a little faster if you had the sourdough with it. But they just baked it on hot rocks or on the hearth or whatever. They didn't have modern day stoves, as you know, I guess. But it took time for it to rise. Now, he instructed them here to eat that lamb overnight, let none of it remain till morning. They were to eat the whole thing. Uh, and if any did remain, it was to be burned with fire. Christ is our Passover, and we are to use Him. We are to use Him up, if you will. We are to eat of His life, His bread, drink of His wine, His blood, because He is our Passover. And we don't want to leave Him any, don't want to leave Him left over at all. Follow? We need to use His sacrifice fully. Not let it go to waste. Not let it be a partial thing. But a total, complete commitment to involve us ourselves in His life completely. Where our heart, mind, body, and soul worship the Father and the Son as we have been instructed in the first commandment as reminded in Bible baseball last night. Now, how were they to come prepared for this sacrifice? Verse 11 of Exodus 12. Thus shall you eat it with your loins girded. They were to have their clothes on. They were to have, if they wore robes, even the men, they were to have them girded up so that they could move quickly, not like trying to run in a long dress. Your loins girded, your shoes on your feet. Don't even leave your shoes at the door. Have your shoes on. And your staff in your hand. Were they to sit there and eat this roast lamb and bitter herbs with one hand while they held the staff in the other? Could they lean it against the table while they ate with both hands? I don't know, but the picture is very clear that they were be to, to be ready to head for the door any moment and not have any wasted motion. 
Does it not tell us in Matthew 24 that when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple at Jerusalem after God's people build it, that when they see, we see, hopefully, the army gathering around Jerusalem, that we not go back in our house to get anything, that we run immediately. Going to have to have legs of a deer by then, I guess. There'll be no time to waste. Anyone who hesitates will die. Satan will be after us with an army. Just as it was here. And that would materialize in this story as well. As Pharaoh, once he recovered and realized what was happening, would come after them to either kill them all or bring them back as slaves. So they were to do this in haste. And another point I want to make, not just in haste, but in Exodus 13, verse 18, God led the people about through the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea, and the children of Israel went up harnessed out of the land of Egypt. Harnessed there means five in a rank, five in a row. They didn't just run for their very lives, but they were organized, five abreast, in lines of five lined up, 600,000 men, women, and children, and exactly how they handle the animals, I don't know. Now, I doubt they left their homes that night at midnight on the 14th. Now, Moses had told them to prepare to stay in their houses until morning. But the firstborn died at midnight. And immediately, Pharaoh said, get out, get out now. Do not delay. All right, they were up, they had their staff in their hand, their shoes on, and their loins were girded. They grabbed their kneading troughs, their bread, and whatever else they could gather up, and already probably had it planned ahead of time, and fled their homes and headed to, uh, why am I saying Ramallah? It's uh, Ramses that night. And in fact, the scripture I read just this morning says that they went out by night. I think it's Deuteronomy 16.1, if I recall. But they actually did go out by night. Even though they had been told to be prepared, it would be dangerous until morning. I guess technically after midnight is morning, but uh, the sun certainly wasn't coming up. Uh, but when the cry came, they were ready. Now, if they knew they had until 7 o'clock in the morning... Why have your shoes on and your staff in your hand? But they knew the word could come at any time, and they had better be ready. Now, they probably went as family groups to Ramses, where they gathered. And there, they lined up in ranks of five and went orderly from that point on. I doubt between midnight, one and two o'clock in the morning, they lined up in ranks of five uh, and marched out of wherever they happened to be because they were scattered over a wide area of Goshen and perhaps other areas of that land. So they couldn't have lined up and gotten everything ready that quickly. So they had been given a prearranged signal, I would think, 
to all meet at Ramesses. There we'll get organized and we'll march on out of here. Ranks of five, I looked up the word in the Hebrew, means five in a rank as an army. They had to have been prepared to fight. To be ready to do battle, to get out. And you need to be organized in order to do that, do you not? You can't have a bunch of ragtag people with no organization and no command centers and no captains and get anything done. It just doesn't work that way in business or in war or in church or in school or anything else. You have to have some organization. It wasn't long after that that Moses organized them in chapter 18 in ranks of, or captains of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens so that they had organizational capacity to help him with decisions, to help do things decently and in order, which is God's way, because he is not the author of confusion. So, they were to be alert and ready to go at the drop of a hat or at the order of Pharaoh. And they were also to get themselves organized in order to get out of there and to go where God was taking them. So they had their own responsibility in it. Now let's tie that to why we're here, because we understand that the first day of the Passover season is the day Christ would die. He would be tortured and killed. We still take the Passover, not the lamb today, but the bread and the wine as he did with his disciples as an example, and they represent him. Without him, there is no deliverance, just as without Moses, who was a type of Christ, there could have been no deliverance. So God sent Christ, God himself, to begin to countermand Satan and to cause mankind as a whole to escape the slavery that Satan has had us in since Adam and Eve, where we've been doing his bidding ever since, for the most part. And even ancient Israel, given leadership of Moses, rebelled almost immediately against Moses and against God. And then God kept sending leaders to tell them what was wrong and what they needed to do, and they stoned them, or sawed them in half, or boiled them in oil, or whatever, in the Old Testament, and again in the New Testament. At the end, the leaders God selects for the end time are going to be killed in the streets of Jerusalem after a mighty battle. Revelation 11 tells you that. So, the more things go on, the more they're the same. Now, we know that Christ is the sacrifice and propitiation for our sin, and that as of the finish of Passover service the other night, we stood clean, we stood pure, we stood without sin before the Father and the Lamb. Our sins washed away. Now that does not preclude that we will sin again. So the next six days 
the number of man, seven total in Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread, a godly number. But the first has to do with Christ and all that he did. The last six have to do with man, the number of man, and what man's responsibility in the whole thing is. Now, Moses had a responsibility. Those people had a responsibility. They were given instructions, and they were to follow those in order to be delivered. So, we have shown what Christ did. We have rehearsed it this year already. And now we're on the first of the last six days to do our part the way God wants it done. And that part is to put sin out of our lives. Now, all those Israelites had individual captivity. Each of them was a slave to the Mitzriamite Empire. And they had their own attitudes to deal with. When they left, They left with a high hand. They were excited that God had indeed delivered them. I think they went with a certain fear and trepidation and haste, scared to death, because they had been in captivity so long they had a slave mentality, and they couldn't really believe the prospects of true freedom. So they had attitudes to deal with. They had a mentality of slavery and of being inferior, of having superiors, of all kinds of psychoses, as we've seen throughout history, as peoples have been enslaved in various centuries by different empires. When that slavery is lifted, there are still all kinds of emotional problems and difficulties and cultural adjustments to be made, even as when slavery was abolished of the black peoples in our country, we are still dealing, and they especially are still dealing, with the after-effects, with feelings of inferiority being replaced in some cases by feelings of superiority, It's a very, very difficult adjustment to make, and it's gone on now for generations. And the attitudes of the Israelites, we who had them captive, has been a problem as well in learning how to deal with them being free and being equal in every way, not inferior, not subject. There have been horrendous adjustments to be made. They have not been made. And we're going to see race riots again in this country. We see little ones here and there. But it's building, and it's going to get far, far worse than what we have ever experienced in modern times. And the Gentile will get themselves up high above us. That's predicted in the Scripture because of our disobedience to God. So it will be riots. And our peoples are going to be in the hands of the Gentiles once again. Not just those that we took captive and brought here, but those who come in and invade as well. They will rise up high above us, and we're going into slavery again. Abject iron slavery again. Read Ezekiel 5. 
one-third by famine and pestilence, one-third by the sword, and one-third as slaves. Ten percent saved out, basically a third. That's what's coming to this country. Now, that's what Pharaoh tried to do once Israel got out of his grasp. He wanted them brought back and made slaves again. So he went after them. What's it like when you try to escape the culture and the society of this world around us? We all experienced it when we began to learn the truth. We began to give up Christmas and Easter and Halloween and Valentine's and all these pagan holidays. We began to consider going to the Feast of Tabernacles and Passover and the Holy Days of God instead. Our friends, our relatives fought us on it. They thought we were going bonkers for the most part. And they didn't want to turn us loose. They wanted us to stay in our little Methodist, Presbyterian, or Lutheran, or Catholic mode and not break free from that. They wanted to keep us. And still, some of them try to draw us back, even yet. Decades later for some of us. They don't want to turn us loose. And then when you see scriptures that tell you to flee Babylon to get out of the midst of it, to make it quit walking all over you with its culture and society, you find that you don't want to turn loose either. It's hard to give up a lot of the things that are so bright and glistening and seemingly fun in this world that are truly ungodly in our society. What we watch, what we do, what we eat, what we drink, what we everything about it is upside down, backward, and designed to destroy us. The only thing that's good is what God originally made, and we should make an attempt to eat it as much like God made it as we can. In spite of Monsanto and DuPont and all these big food, I, I use the word food loosely, producers, it's junk. It's poison. It's designed to kill us. But how hard it is to break free from that. How hard it is to even want to break free from that because it's become habit to us. We grew up with it. My granddaddy used to get all the day-old bread and bring it home to feed his rabbits. Donuts and all kinds of goodies. And he stored them in an old house back by the barn. And my cousins and I became rabbits. We gorged ourselves on that junk. That's why I'm not 6'3 and handsome. I'm kidding, of course, but we loved it. I grew up on it. And I had to get rid of it. It kills us. We're a nation dying of vitamin, mineral, famine, and disease. We're already plagued by heart disease, cancer, and diabetes, and many, many other diseases. They were almost unheard of a hundred years ago. It's hard to break loose 
And that's just one facet. The entertainment, the violent video games we allow our children to play, hard to break them loose from those things, so hard. And even adults that play those things. And we wonder why there's more violence and it's increasing in the land. Because they're trained on death and killing. That's what the games are about. And on and on and on it goes. Now God has told us to break free. These six days, this being the second of which, or seven days altogether, we're not to have leavening or to get sin out of our lives because during these seven days, leavening represents sin. And it was fast bread. Get away from sin fast. Do not let it dwell in your members. It is an urgent matter to get sin out of our lives. And I want to go into somewhat about the organization to do that. Because it is very easy to go through these days saying, well, this represents putting sin out of our lives. It takes some physical effort to get the leavening out of our houses, to throw away extra bread and so on, and not have it in our dwelling come Passover evening. It isn't too big a deal to put that stuff out. But I'll tell you what, if you start trying to get sin out of your mind and your emotions and your feelings and your hands and your feet, it is not easy. It's hard to do rapidly, and it's almost impossible to do without the right organization in order to accomplish it. You have to establish a plan, a purpose, a recognition of what needs to be done. We'll get into that a little more. I want to go now, well, first of all, to 1 John 1. 1 John 1. Now, as I said yesterday and showed you Scripture... We are to have a period of time prior to Passover in which we define sin in our lives. We look for it, we examine ourselves, we find out what the sin is. We make that determination. Then when the days of unleavened bread come, we work at getting rid of that. So there has to be, first of all, recognition. And if you do not examine yourself seriously, deeply, and without lying to yourself, you will find that you have sinned. I suspect that as I went through the works of the flesh there in Galatians 5 yesterday, you were able to recognize yourself somewhere in there. Or not? What if you didn't? What if you said, I don't do any of those things? I'm not like that. I don't have works of the flesh. Let's go to 1 John 1. And here, pick it up in, uh, oh, what do I want? Verse 5. 
This then is the message which you have heard of him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. God is pure light. He has no dark side, no darkness in his mind, no sin, no shadow, nothing to hide, nothing to be ashamed of, nothing to fight, because he is perfectly mature and has no sin. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Now, one verse establishes that God is pure light, no shadow of turning, no darkness. Now, if we say we fellowship and associate with him, and it does say in verse 3, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. That is our first and foremost fellowship. There is where we go for our inspiration, our strength, our power, our help, our solace, (coughs) our forgiveness, our bouts of conscience. Their fellowship is where you go when you need help. Now, humans can help some, sometimes. But ultimately, God is where you have to go. That's where your real fellowship is. You can never say, brethren, that you're all alone. We as humans can get lonely. We can feel alone. But we are never without God if we approach it. In fact, Paul said, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. We know, without question, that he loves each and every one of us, and he said so. So when you approach him, there's no malice, there's no deceit, there's no lying, there's no pretense. He is pure and true and honest and cares. You could have no better counselor. If we fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. We're lying to ourselves. If whatever amount of darkness you allow in your thoughts, it's been said of humans, and I think it's true, that we all have a darker side. We all have thoughts, feelings, emotions from time to time, and maybe a lot of the time, that are ungodly. We can find our minds drifting off into places they should not be, that God does not go, but our minds will go there. Whatever it might be that is ungodly and is therefore darkness. It is a constant battle not to have a darker side. To become all light as God is light. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, in the same way that He does, We have to pattern our lives after the Father and the Son and walk as Christ walked, to follow in His footsteps, to do what He did and think like He thought. That requires a great deal of Bible reading and study. You may already know things, but you can forget them in a flash. 
How long does it take your mind to wander off somewhere it should not be? How long does it take? And how conscious of you are you of it? It can go somewhere it shouldn't be in a flash. You didn't direct it there. You didn't make it go there. It just went. How did it get there? And you shake your head and say, the eternal rebuke you. Get rid of those thoughts. Get back on something positive that is in the light. Don't allow a dark side. We can't just accept that mankind has told us we all have a dark side and then allow it, can we? No, he's telling us here, get rid of it. Don't let it exist. Bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. Every thought. Now there is a tall order. (laughs) Because your mind and mine rebel against that. And we like some aspects of our dark side, however deep and dark it may be. If we walk in the light as He is, as he is in the light, in the same manner and way, we have fellowship one with another. Now, if you chase out dark thoughts, negative thoughts, you will love one another. It is dwelling on our dark thoughts or somebody else's downside or their problems or their weaknesses or their sins alleged or true that create havoc and division and relationship problems. That is why God says don't go there. He says, think on the things that are positive and good and uplifting and true in the sense of true, proper thinking, not in, well, yeah, that sin is true. That's, that's a misapplication and totally out of context of what is being said there. If we get rid of those dark thoughts about sin that we might like or about others and what they are like, or what we read their motives to be, then we can have fellowship one with another. But the fellowship has to be with the Father and the Son in order to drive out the darkness so the light can be dwelling in us and then we can get along. That's how love comes, is getting rid of hate, getting rid of negativity, getting rid of all these negative emotions that we express to one another that we should not have and love each other with loving, gentle, tender kindness. So if we get rid of the darkness, then we will have fellowship not only with God and His Son, but with each other. And the blood of Emmanuel, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So we have to make the effort to come out of the darkness and into the light. And if we're making that struggle, then we receive forgiveness and mercy and grace, unmerited pardon. Then our relationship with God is clean and pure and right. 
Now that's the process. Let's see the pitfall. Verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Sin equates to darkness. The wages of sin is death. And death is the ultimate darkness, eternal death. So sin and darkness are the same thing. Death. Nothingness. So if you think you don't have a dark side or a darker side, you're a liar. And the truth is not in you. You're deceiving yourself. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if you don't see your sin, you have not searched deeply enough and you have not been honest with yourself, and you have hidden it even from yourself, and that is, in effect, a lie. And God has stated that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the penalty is darkness, death. And if you try to maintain the veneer, even in your own mind, not just to others, that you are sinless, You're making God out to be a liar. And what's worse than being a liar yourself would be to be calling God a liar. Telling Him, you're wrong, I don't have sin. I'm not like these others, as the Pharisees said. Now let's rehearse again those words. Let a man examine himself. Not take the Passover frivolously or half-heartedly or without recognition of sin. Because if we don't examine ourselves and find that sin within our own hearts and minds, then we are taking the Passover unworthily. It isn't worth to us the value that is there. The value is there, we're just not recognizing it. Because we have not looked introspectively deeply enough to recognize how desperately we need that sacrifice. If we content ourselves by saying, well, I have this little problem, I have that little problem, but overall I'm a good guy. The hell you are. There are no good guys. And I use the term advisedly, I'm not cursing. Because hell and the grave and death is where we're going if we don't recognize our sin and purge it out and get rid of all the dark side and all the shadow and all the turning that is ungodly that is within us. Now, if we did not go to that depth in preparing for this Passover we just took, there's still hope. Get honest with yourself. 
Drag out those things that you have hidden from yourself. Those things you don't like to talk about or think about. Those things where your mind goes sometimes where it ought not go. Those attitudes about God. Those attitudes about others that you let percolate through your mind and your emotions and in your conversation to damage and hurt one another instead of love one another in kindness. We all do it, brethren. Now, these days that we're in right now are designed to help us get rid of that. The next scripture I'm going to, and I'll have to finish here. Well, man, maybe I shouldn't even start. Getting down to time to to be wrapping this up. I think I'll wait till tomorrow to get into this next scripture because I want to spend some time at it. To drive in the point that I've been discussing here toward the end of this sermon. Of how serious this is and how God wants us to approach it and what He wants us to do about it. Because it could have to do with our very eternal life. It's no time to fool around. It's no time to take it lightly. It's no time to do things in an unworthy, half-hearted manner. The space for repentance for you and me, and our judgment is now. It's not later. Judgment is now on the spiritual house of Israel. We are being judged day by day by God as He ponders our hearts and looks at the darkness within us and wishes to supplant it with His light. And we ignore it and deny it. And we have our little favorite dark places that we might like to go that is a sin that we particularly enjoy. Our own little sacred sin cow that we don't want to butcher. We all have them. Or we're liars. And the truth is not in us. So this next scripture we'll go to, God willing, and I live till tomorrow. We'll see this emphasized and what God wants us to do about it.